Psalm 31 is what we're looking at this morning. And before we get to verse 1, which is normally where we start, let's start just before that, where we read for the director of music, a psalm of David. Now, ask the question here, why does that prefix the start of this psalm? Why does it say for the director of music, a psalm of music? Or it might say in a different translation, for the choir master. Why do you think? Come on, shout out. Why would, why would that be there? Meant to be sung, yeah. Not only is it meant to be sung, it's meant to be performed. This is a psalm of David, uh, and this is being given to the director of music or the choir master to be performed. We can see praise as being personal, and it rightly is, isn't it? But sometimes we can be tempted to think that when we broadcast our praises publicly or congregationally, it loses some of its value. But that isn't necessarily true. Maybe we think that if I worship in the privacy of my own home, then I'm praising God. But if I stand at the front of the church and sing, then maybe that's for my, to make me look good. And of course, we need to watch our own motives and examine our hearts, of course. But what does Ephesians 5.19 tell us? I'll just read it. Ephesians 5.19 encourages us to speak to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So clearly then, we are to sing from our heart to God, but also we're to sing to one another. And so we shouldn't obsess over um, you know, hiding away our worship. We should be, be free to enjoy singing for God's glory as we do this morning and, and we should enjoy the music that is available to us. David's song, which we're about to look at, could have been kept to himself. It could have been a deeply significant cry of worship for the ears of God alone. But I tell you what, I am grateful that David took the time to write this down and pass it on to the director of music for the choir to sing for the scribes to note down and ultimately for the church to still be blessed with to this day, thousands of years later. We should not take our composers or musicians for granted. Not those in this building now who serve us, and neither those who we don't know, but we enjoy singing the songs that we sing. Both historically, those from years ago, and also today, the modern ones as well. I know so much of Christian music today can seem very commercialised and sadly some of it probably is more to do with money and fame than God's glory. But there is still so much good music out there to encourage and bless us and we should be singing it to one another for our encouragement and to build us up. I know during lockdown we started watching the Keith and Kristen Getty uh, family hymn sings each week and it's been great, it's been an encouragement, it's, it, it's fantastic and we kept doing that. Um, and, and enjoyed it. By the way, isn't it amazing that Ephesians uh, were to make music from our heart to the Lord? Or as the King James Version said, make melody in your heart to the Lord. So sing to one another, make melody in your heart. How amazing is that? That as our hearts sing God's praise, He is glorified and He is pleased. Maybe we don't have great voices. Maybe we can't keep tune. Perhaps when we open our mouths to sing, our neighbours close their windows so they don't have to listen. 
But even if we sound terrible, the melody in our hearts and in our minds often sounds better, doesn't it? You know, when no one is around to hear us singing, we think we sound better because we, we just imagine what it sounds like rather than actually listening to it. And God is pleased with the melodies in our hearts. Not only that, but we can fall into the trap of thinking that God only cares about what we say. We think that composing concise and clever, theologically accurate prayers will please God. And of course, it's important to pray with our minds and good theology. But we should also be encouraged that God rejoices in the emotion of our hearts. Ephesians 5, 19 to 20, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father. Do you ever get the sense when you're in the garden, you see a black bear sitting on a branch singing, and you just think, it's as if he's praising his maker. Do you know what I mean? You just hear that, that beautiful sound, and it reminds you of passages which talk about all creation giving glory to God. And it's as if that little bird is singing. Why is it singing? Because its creator gave it a voice to sing. And as we hear that, we worship God for the beauty of his creation, which we get to actively enjoy. How good is our God? Anyway, that's all by way of introduction. Let's get into the song that David has recorded for us here. Uh, not recorded on a CD as an album, but recorded in words for us to read and enjoy. And let's do that so uh, that we can hear it sung. Not that I'm going to be preaching the rest of this talk in some sort of Gilbert and Sullivan fashion. You'll be glad to hear uh, but rather, as we meditate these words, I pray that melodies of joy and gratitude and love will ring in our ears. And that as we think about these things and, and let them sink in, that it, it will escape our lips as a song of praise, perhaps in our closing hymn, as we, we process what we've listened to and as we release that in praise. Or maybe later today, as we're driving our car or doing the dishes or going about our lives, or perhaps later this week, May we catch ourselves joyfully praising our Creator, perhaps less tunefully and impressively than a blackbird on a branch, but nevertheless with the knowledge that God is glorified by our singing and our melody when it comes from a heart which is thankful for God's provision. Here's a question. Where do kings and rulers take their refuge? Well, we know that Churchill took his refuge from the blitz in the cabinet war rooms. And you can go and have a look. In fact, it, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been much good in a direct hit, it turns out. But nevertheless, it was perceived to be safer, to be slightly below ground. And so that's where he was. Many leaders today, no doubt, have deep level shelters prepared and available for them should they need to seek refuge from any attack. Others, instead of seeking going down, they seek their refuge in the air. Supposedly, the President of the United States has a fleet of converted 747s codenamed Nightwatch that are capable of being kept airborne for up to a week if necessary should the president be uh, too vulnerable on the ground. Well, I tell you what, after a week of uh, airline food, um, whatever nuclear wasteland is down on the ground would be appealing. So maybe that's the plan, I don't know. Rulers today put their confidence in their armies, their warships, their fighter squadrons, their spy satellites, covert operatives, stockpiles, contingency plans and nuclear deterrents. In the past, things were simpler. Kings would take refuge in national trust properties or English heritage sites. 
But of course, that was before these castles and forts were crumbling ruins crammed with expensive gift shops and fancy cafes. This is back when they were fortified refuges, strongholds guarded and secure with their hidden passages and stored provisions. We know that at various times, King David had his strongholds, didn't he? Whether he was hiding in a cave or safe behind the wall of Jerusalem, David had great refuge. At the time, world-leading refuges, the top of technology, the equivalent of what our rulers have today. And yet, what does he say here in verse 1? In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. You see, David's real refuge is not the wall that surrounds his city or the palace that he lives in or the cave that he might seek shelter in. His real refuge is his God. We're vulnerable, aren't we? Even with all our technology, it seems that we're only ever a few thousand retiring lorry drivers away from a national crisis. We feel so secure and confident with what we have, but it often doesn't take very much for that confidence to fail and that security to come tumbling down. We're grateful for the NHS, aren't we? We're thankful that although we complain about prices and occasional supply issues, on the whole, we have amazing access to food. You know, we're not worried that, you know, we don't complain that we can't get food sometimes. We complain that Tesco has substituted our biscuits for a different brand of biscuits. And although it is terrible that there is such a need for food banks in this country, the reality is that it is good that there are food banks. And there are lots of places in the world where that's not the case. There's not access to these things. We don't even think about getting water, do we, in this country? We just turn the tap on and we have water. Electricity, light at the flip of the switch, and easy access to incredible global communications. And yet these things aren't as dependable as we like to think they are. I mean that in two ways. Of course they can fail, but not just that. If our sole hope and refuge is in these material things that surround us, that make our lives comfortable, these things that modern society has constructed, well, we're building a house of cards which one day will inevitably fall down for each and every one of us. It's interesting, isn't it, that we have heard the mantras over the last couple of years, trust the science and trust the doctors. I think it's good that we do that, isn't it? It's great that God has given us these people and this knowledge which can help us. We all know that sadly scientists come to a point where they throw their hands up and say, there is nothing more we can do. Our knowledge only takes us this far for now. Perhaps in the future science will allow us to do more, but at the moment here is where we are. This is the limit of our understanding and our ability. We know, tragically, that as wonderful as the NHS is, there comes a point when the most highly trained and successful physicians have to say, we are so, so sorry. There is simply nothing more that we can do. David's refuge, his hope, his security, is firmly and entirely in God. We should follow his example, so that when our own son turns against us, or our child dies, or armies rise up to defeat us, all of which were things which happened to David, 
we don't find ourselves adrift without hope and refuge. Instead, through deep pain, as is often shown to us in the Psalms, David is not taking this lightly. And yet, although he is suffering, although he is in pain and troubled by what is happening, still his refuge is in his God. And of course, David doesn't know some of the troubles that we face. But hopefully we will not know the troubles he faced either. And surely they are equivalent. The middle part of verse 1. Let me never be put to shame. I don't know about you, but those, that, those the words sort of stick in my throat a little bit when I say them. Because it, it seems a little bit hypocritical, doesn't it, to ask God to not let me be put to shame when so often I'm the one putting myself to shame. We're all sinners, aren't we? We all know we're guilty. We all know that we deserve shame, really. And of course, David was no different from us. He sinned like we do. In fact, maybe he didn't. Maybe he sinned in ways that most of us can't believe. He committed adultery and effectively had his lover's husband murdered. I don't think we should be smug to ourselves and think that we're better than David because we didn't do that and never will do that. Because I wonder if given half the chance if circumstances were the same, I wonder if we would do any better. The desire to cover our failings and respond to our sin by sinning more to cover it up, we've all felt that. Thankfully, most of us don't have the power that David had. And so we don't have the opportunities to act on our darkest impulses. We can't just smash through the slow moving traffic or run over that cyclist or get the person on the other end of the phone fired because we don't like the tone of voice. But if we could do these things and get away with them, who knows what we'd be capable of. Ultimately, David's sin was made public. In a sense, he was put to shame. So what is David saying here? Well, what does the end of verse 1 say? In your righteousness, deliver me. Or in this translation, deliver me in your righteousness. Why did God protect David? Because David is righteous? No. Because God is righteous. David's hope and refuge is not his army. It's not his material possessions. It's not his security. It's not even his own righteousness and reputation. David's hope and confidence is in God and God's righteousness. And that's why David could ask to never be put to shame. And that's why we can ask to never be put to shame. Not because David has done nothing and never will do anything shameful. Not because anything David has done, which is shameful, would be covered up and never brought to light. Let's face it, we know his failings here, don't we? We're talking about them thousands of years later. But instead, because David's confidence isn't in himself, but in God, and ultimately, in a very real sense, though the whole world might scorn you and turn against you, if God is not ashamed of you, at the end of the day, what's the problem? Now, we've only got to the end of verse 1, but don't worry, because most of the points that I've been making as we read through that are going to come together as we go through the rest. I'm not going to remake the same point again and again and again, but the psalm does that. So as we go through it, remember what we've talked about and apply that to the next bit we're reading. Verse 2, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my refuge, to my rescue, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. 
Again, we see that David's hope is God. Verse 3. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. God is David's security. And David asks for God to lead and guide him for God's name's sake. You know, there's a parallel to some of these words, to another prayer. Because this psalm, while being a song of praise that we get to sing with David, is also a prayer to God, isn't it? And some of this reminds me of another prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Do you see the parallel there? Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Look at that verse. Since you are my rock and my fortress, because of who you are, which is the way we start the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does David go on to say? For your sake, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. And the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Again, why is David asking for God's help? Ultimately, it's not about David, it's about God's glory. And why are we told to pray for God's help again? The same thing, we are to pray for God's will to be done so that he might be glorified by helping us. David is not pleading with God so that he can leave a cush- lead a cushy life. It's not casual prayer here for God to overthrow David's op- opponents and grant him success. David is concerned because he wants God to be glorified. Verse 4, free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Think about this for a minute. Who are the oppressors here? Who are the people who are setting the trap for David to fall into? I don't know when this psalm was written. Could it be that David here is talking about Saul? Could be, couldn't it? Saul tried to trap and get David. Could be. Or maybe he's talking about his own son who turned against him. Or any of a number of opposing nations that tried to defeat David. All of those are possible. But I want to suggest something else, which could also be true, and I suspect might be more helpful for us. I mean, none of us, as far as I'm aware, are royalty. Mind you, a mousey is, isn't she? But she's not here this morning. Uh, but other than mousey, none of us are royalty. So we don't have problems with uh, invading nations or... or, or the sort of issues that David faced. But the battles we fight are altogether different from what David faced. That's what we think. Just consider the following passages here briefly. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9. You don't need to look to these. We're going to fly through them. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 to 26. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See, our enemy is not always out there. Sometimes it's in here, in our hearts. And not only that, there are dark spiritual forces at work, which can be far more dangerous and destructive than the worst human enemy we could imagine. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, 
because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Ephesians 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you see the parallel in the language there that talk about a trap? Verse 4, you take me out of the net, they've hidden me, you, you free me from the trap. Verse 15, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Could it be that David is recognising that he is fighting the same battles that you and I are today? Does David's prayer here bring to mind another prayer, again more familiar? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I don't know what David specifically has on his mind when he's saying this. But nevertheless, we know that David faced the same trials and challenges that we do today. And this prayer is directly applicable to that. Just as the Lord's prayers. prayer is. Listen, I'm going to wrap things up quickly, shortly. But there is so much more that we could say. We barely scratched the surface, I feel. But I just want to try and tie together and uh, drive home one point which all of this relates to. It's the main point I'd like to make this morning. Let's read from verses 5 to 13. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks into pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Sarah, sorry, I'm reading Psalm 29 rather than 31. Thinking, That's not right, what's going on? Okay, Psalm 31, reading verses 5 to 13. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery, for I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. In verse 10 there, there's a crucial phrase. It says, my life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. And if you look down in the, the, the footnotes there, verse 10, it says, or guilt. So different translations, you can like, different translations would translate that as iniquity instead of affliction. Meaning, that the cause of David's problem is his sin. And even if you would prefer affliction as the translation to that specific Hebrew word to guilt, we know that that's true, don't we? The rest of the Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of God's standard, and that sin deserves wrath, and that our biggest problem is sin. And certainly David was no different from this. David's strength fails because he's a sinner. David is not perfect. That's one of the reasons why he can't be confident in himself, because he's a failure like we all are. So what hope does he have? 
Verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. David's confidence is that God will redeem him. What does that mean? It means that God will make a way that a sinner like David can be made righteous and stand in God's presence. Verse 13, for I hear the slander of many, there is terror on every side, they conspire against me and plot to take my life. David is talking here about what he fears. But does that remind you of another character in the Bible that we read about? They can, there is terror on every side, they conspire against me and plot to take my life. Does that remind you about somebody who people schemed and plotted against so that they could take his life? Verse 11. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. Does that remind you of someone who should have been received with rejoicing, but instead to those around him he became a reproach? Verse 14 to 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from your enemies and from those who pursue me. Does that remind you of somebody who prayed that the cup might be taken from him and yet no rescue appeared to come? Does that remind you of somebody who cried out, not as David does here, I trust you, O Lord, and I say that you are my God, but instead, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 16. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Does that remind you of somebody in whom God was well pleased and yet turned his face away from him? Somebody who was stricken for our transgression. Somebody who, as they hung on the cross, the sky went dark and the Father turned away. Verse 17. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. Can you think of somebody who really was righteous and yet was put to shame by the wicked? Verse 18. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. Somebody who was falsely accused and yet because of insolent lying lips endured unimaginable suffering. We could go on. But do you see? David had not seen God's plan of redemption. The Messiah who was promised, the Redeemer, had not come yet. David knew that he needed a saviour. And his confidence wasn't in himself, but in his God. And that his God would make a way to redeem him. It is because Jesus would be stricken, because Jesus would suffer, because Jesus would endure shame and be cut off from the Father, that David could have confidence in God's love. You see, all the things that David feared, that he deserved, the punishment he deserved for his sin, it didn't come on David, did it? Instead, it came on Jesus as he hung on the cross. Jesus bore the shame that David feared in his place. And because of that, David could be redeemed. And we can look back and see the Messiah has come and he has fulfilled these things. And we can see the parallels between what David feared and prayed for release from and that 
Jesus took all of that. Despite the fact that in verse 13, David was surrounded by terror on every side, he was able to cry out with confidence in verses 14 to 16. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. And in verse 19, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men, on those who take refuge in you, in the shelter of your presence you hide them, from the intrigues of men, in your dwelling you keep them safe from accusing tongues. And verse 21, praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. You see, David is not confident in himself, but he's there, he's confident in the Lord. And we can be confident in the Lord too. Where is our refuge? Is it in ourselves and our own ability? Because if it is, we'll fail. And we won't have safety. Or is it in God's righteousness and in his love and in his care for us and in what Jesus has done for us at the cross and paying the punishment that we deserve for our sin? If that's where our hope is, then we really can't say with David, our times are in your hands, Lord, and we can have confidence that we will never be put to shame. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that, like David, we can have confidence in your righteousness. We can ask you to deliver us because of your righteousness. We can seek refuge in you. Jesus, we thank you that we have the privilege of not just trusting that God would provide a Redeemer and a Messiah by looking forward to a provision which was yet to come, but instead we can look back through the Scriptures Jesus, we can see what you did. We can see that you came, that you lived, that you were perfect, that you didn't break God's law, that you fulfilled it, that you were righteous, and yet that you suffered and died like a sinner, that the wrath of the Father was poured out on you, that you suffered to buy our freedom. Jesus, we thank you that because of what you have done for us, we can be forgiven. We thank you that we can have confidence in you because of your righteousness. And we ask that each of us this morning would understand really what that means. What it means to recognise our own sin, our own unworthiness. And to put our trust in your provision, Lord, for us. Lord, we ask that each of us would not find our confidence in our material possessions or our own abilities or our own perceived righteousness or anything that we may think we have. But instead, Lord, that we would be entirely dependent upon you so that whether we are in need or in plenty, whether we are in sickness or in health, whatever season of life we find ourselves, whatever difficulties we face, Lord, we pray that our confidence will continue to be in you. You will provide for us so, so that you can continue to be glorified through our lives. Lord, we ask these things for your glory and in your name. And we do pray that you would bless us and use us now. Amen.